I love interacting with people, whether it's with the person who's selling me a train ticket or, or whether it's somebody that I sell cheese to or whether it's somebody I buy cheese from or whether it's somebody that I'm sitting uh, you know, in a container talking to in a, in a radio show. I'm interested in all of them and I'm keen to learn more about them and interact with them. You know, I hope that people you know, find me accessible and, and open. Uh, I'd like to think that's how I set myself out, but I'm sure there's some people out there that find it challenging, but there's too many great interactions to be had and, and I focus on those, to be honest. HeritageRadioNetwork.org proudly presents Evolutionaries, Jason Hines of Neil's Yard Dairy and Burrow Cheese Company. If there's one thing Jason Hines can do, it's sell cheese. And he does it better than most everybody else in the world. Jason is a pioneer in the artisanal cheese movement. He's the sales director at Neil's Yard Dairy, a London-based cheese shop he helped establish as one of the most important food retailers of the 21st century. Neil's Yard Dairy features exclusively British cheeses, an idea most people thought was crazy at a time when cheese usually meant French or Italian. Jason also started the Burrow Cheese Company, which sells only one cheese, Comte. He's also the founder of Essex Street Cheese Company, a cheese importer and wholesaler that focuses on a limited number of perfectly ripened classic cheeses, specially selected at the source. Jason is an unsung hero in the quality food world. Like other pioneers in the industry, such as Steve Jenkins, Jason went left when most people went right. He took chances and followed his gut. This is his story. The interest in cheese came about because, I, you know, growing up in Cairo, it was the early 1970s. President Nasser had just died. We moved there just before he died. Uh, with his demise and President Sadat's arrival into Cairo, the Russians moved out and the Americans moved in. But one of the consequences of the Russians being there is there weren't many trappings for the West. And so what small amount of pocket money I was given by my parents when I was about five or six, I spent on the laughing cow cheese. Um, you know, the little triangles with the laughing cow's face on it. So it was a symbol of the West, this laughing cow box. You didn't have a lot of that kind of stuff in grocery stores in the Middle East. But also inside this, this you know, this box that, you know, really was such a symbol of the West because there's no cows in, in Cairo, believe me. They also had stickers of Tintin or Asterix. And uh, growing up in a French school, I was really into these disanimated, these cartoons and uh, would stick them on my suitcase. And we traveled a lot when I was there. And so I had this, my own little mini suitcase that my brother, we each had, my brother and I, um, that was, you know, well covered with these stickers. So that was, that's what set the cheese thing in motion, I'm sure of it, because I did also eat the little bits of cheese. I mean, yes, it's processed cheese and not the best cheese, but who else was, you know, going out of their way to spend their pocket money on cheese at the age of four or five? Not many people. You know, all I knew was that I was crazy about great cheese and into traveling and that, uh, you know, I had an instinct for it. When I was finishing up at university, I announced to everybody that I was going to export British cheese. Uh, all my friends at college thought I was absolutely crazy. But, you know, I didn't mind being seen as somebody that um, was taking crazy pills because I, my instinct was strong that this was what I should be doing. I mean, you have to remember that we only had three customers, so we ship once a month. And 25 out of the 28 days per month that I worked, I was working on the shop. 
So uh, my understanding of the cheeses that, was, that we were selling was fundamental. And so I knew that I could speak to those two or three, three, four customers that we had pretty eloquently about those cheeses. So what I used to do was taste the cheeses that we were sending out on a particular monthly shipment. And then I would write a one-page document we called an invitation to order. And I would put that document on the thermal rolled facsimile machine and fax that to those customers and then maybe follow up with a telephone call. And I could speak about them because I was behind the counter selling cheese, all, selling those cheeses all the time. And I knew what I was going to send. So uh, I was arrested there, you know, how engaged they were and what I was saying about the cheeses that I was selling myself. I was somebody else that was behind the counter selling cheese. So, uh, And then I made the first visit with uh, Randolph, you know, March 93. And it was a pretty weird time because... We arrived into Brooklyn and there was a load of snow came down that night, maybe a foot. Randolph and I had our first appointment to meet Steve Jenkins at Dean and DeLuca. And um, there I was, you know, a new kid on the block. Randolph was talking to Steve in a little table that they used to have always behind the counter at Dean and DeLuca. And I was kind of surplus to require, I was kind of hanging around, you know, because it wasn't my job. To, they were doing the stuff. They were doing the work, you know, which is, seemed to be rapping about stuff. And I was kind of looking, I was looking out the front of the store, uh, Broadway is the front of the store, and out the little side window, there was people skiing on the side street and down Broadway. That's how much snow was on the ground. So I had this really pretty surreal first memory of my first actual export encounter. So with Randolph and Steve in the background talking about big stuff, me looking at people skiing, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? So I just started selling cheese to the customers of Dean and DeLuca. And there was another fellow who worked behind the counter who worked for the Indeluca. And I very soon realized that this, this guy knew nothing about the cheeses that, that we had shipped to him. But he was the guy on the front line. So while Randolph and Steve talked, and they seemed to talk forever, I just sold cheese and chatted to this guy about the cheese that we sold him. And then we start, I talk, as somebody who just retailed cheese all the time, I talked to him about how to, how to cut the cheese, how to wrap the cheese, you know, I just downloaded in the time that I was there, which was about two hours, downloaded everything that I knew as a cheesemonger to this to this guy. And I th- think I left him with better tools than when I than when I had arrived. And so in that first visit, which was the first morning of the first day that we visited, I knew instinctively that this is what I needed to do. It's almost like some kind of cheese evangelism, you know. And so that's what we did. Our cheese on those counters that we supplied looked better and better because people had the tools to sell the cheese well and they became more committed to the cheese. They understood what we did. They understood that that we were not some cheese factory that made all these fancy little expensive cheeses, but that we we were a maturer that worked with specialists, that we, you know, worked hard to get the cheese and a pre-order system to customers in good condition. But that's all one thing, that's just getting it to the counter. The other half of the job was to give the cheesemongers the tool, the tools to sell the cheese well, because at that time in the early 90s, you know, it was a very different landscape. In 2002, Jason accepted an invitation from friend and fellow cheesemonger Pascal Trotte to go to the Franche Comte. There he learned about Comte cheese and the affinage that made it so delicious. He left France with 50 pounds of the cheese and no plan on how to sell it. This eventually led to the birth of the Burrow Cheese Company. Having grown up speaking French and, you know, always had a sort of francophilic side to me, I was always obviously interested in French cheese too. 
I was always, and again, in those days when I was finishing my degree at college and talking to friends about the future, I did say that one of my life goals was to export great British cheese to France. And people did. People thought that was crazy as well. Um, and so the opportunity came about in the mid-90s um, when I went and did a tour and visited a few retailers in Paris. And I met a guy um, who actually was, had been a customer, or a new guy who had been a customer at, at, um, at Neil's Yard not long after I'd started. His name was Steve Saltzman, American actually. His dad, Harry Saltzman, was the director in quite a few of the James Bond films in the 1960s. And Steve was a real larger-than-life character. Um, he really was a bon viveur, and, you know, Steve was a, a talker. And um, in any event, he left London and said, I'm moving to Paris. He actually went to go and set up a radio station in Monaco. Uh, he did all kinds of things. Um, anyway, his passing shot was, his favourite cheese was a cheese called Kirkham's Lancashire, um, which is also one of my favourites. And um, he said, I'm going to go to, when I move to France... When I move to Paris, I'm going to find the best cheese shop and I'm going to make them buy Kirkham's Lancashire. So I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. He did, you know, he did have a penchant for talking. And so we thought, well, maybe that's just hot air. Uh, one year later, I get a call from a guy called Pascal Trotti, who has a cheese shop in the Marais um, in the 4th arrondissement in quite central near the Bastille. And um, he said, um, and I, the call came to me because I'm the only one in the shop that speaks French and uh, I was on the shop at the time and he said I've got this guy Steve Saltzman he's a customer he's a bit crazy and he said I've got to buy this cheese from you and he gave me the gave me your number so uh, I went to visit Pascal in Paris the next time I was there and we worked out a way of getting cheese to him you know uh, uh, it cost him quite a lot in transport but we sold him a bit of Stilton a bit of Montgomery's cheddar and some of this Kirkham's Lancashire and um, developed a really good relationship with him, and so every well, twice a year I would visit Pascal, and, um, and then I he introduced, Pascal introduced me to another um, now quite eminent cheesemonger called Laurent Dubois, and um, our French business grew from there. And whenever I f left Pascal's, it was usually the last visit uh, before I got the Eurostar back home. In fact, this was before the Eurostar, and um, uh, I would buy some French cheese from Pascal. The usual things, you know. Um, Camembert, Roquefort, sort of the establishment of, of French cheese and um, the cheeses that were found in England. And, you know, he said, you know, you really should, this is the cheese that you should take. And he said to me, um, c'est le locomotive de mes ventes, which means it's the locomotive of my sales. And I was like, wow, why do I not know that? And he said it's 20% of the sales in his shop. Uh, aside from the fact that it was almost also the most delicious cheese in his shop. So from that moment on, I just, you know, cast the other cheeses aside and just went home with a kilo of Conte. That was it. So in the end, I was so hacked off. I just said, right, well, I'm going to, I want 50 wheels. Can you deliver them in December? This was June. Um, although I had no idea how or where I was going to sell them and I had no money at all. But anyway, December came and uh, I had to borrow five grand to buy these cheeses and I had to find somewhere to sell them. And so that's what we did. And I sold it on a little mar on a market in central London, borough near one of our shops. Um, and so the whole Conte thing was set in motion.
Borough Cheese Company was founded about 10 years ago now, 2003. At that time, it was selling only one cheese Conte and it only sold it on Borough Market. And the whole thing about the company was that I wanted it to be the simplest possible cheese company in the world, um, believing that you know if you have the best product and you have a simple business model and you have a market of passing trade, which Borough Market does have, it's very busy, that we could have something that was so pure and so simple that um, it would be profitable but also be a lot of fun. And so we had this very clear vision of how we want to set things out. And, and very soon, I mean, within two years, we were selling five wheels of cheese cut in seven hours. Now that's, you know, put that into context, that's about 450 pounds of cheese in seven hours cut. It's a lot. And so Borough Cheese Company was about simplicity and selling one cheese, you know, specializing to the extent that you have a cheese business that sells only one product was something that we championed. And um, to be able to do that and do it really well, um, we thought about all these tiny little details to, to be able to, to you know, uh, give customers a good experience and, and also sell cheese fast. So we didn't handle copper coins. We rounded down always to the nearest base five. And we had a what I call the diamond formation in terms of how we structured the stand. So there's one person fishing, giving small tasters out to passing customers. Then we had a table which had a very specific layout of the cheese. There was a one Conte with a with a with a scale on the left hand side. On the right hand side was the mountain, which was a pile of cheese that's six foot high, structured with different shelves because mountains have shelves on them. And on because uh, you have to remember that. Conte at that time was unknown. It might have been the locomotive of any French cheese shop sales, but believe me, in England, it was an unknown cheese. Roquefort and Brie, Camembert, very well known. Conte, unknown. And so we had to introduce people to this cheese. So that meant putting a taste in their mouths. But we knew the cheese was good because we went to the fort every month to select it. So we knew we had good stuff. And we had often, most of the time, we were selling what I call a nine out of 10 cheese. That means nine mouths taste it. Uh, sorry, 10 mouths taste it, 9 mouths buy it. And um, so that was the fishing. So the, the, the diamond formation had four people. One was out tasting and fishing. The two others were selling. And uh, on the right-hand pile of cheese, which is the mountain, the two shelves had pieces that were cut 3 to £4 pounds value, 4 to £5 pounds value, and other pieces. Other, you know, on the ridges, there were, there were other peaks. So it looked amazing. Um, you know, the vision of it was incredible and the vision of it stopped people anyway. And if they tried it, then, you know, the combination of those two things, the vision and the taste nailed them. It was a company that was all about selling an amazing cheese that no one knew in a model that was, you know, looked incredible and was very simple. It was fun, was fun. You know, we're very fortunate in England because our country is so small. And so we have an opportunity to be able to get to lots of our cheesemakers regularly and do that. You know, so in America, you wouldn't be, it would be very difficult to get to, to, you know, if you're being supplied with cheeses from California and from Wisconsin and from, uh, you know, uh, upstate New York. And, you know, it, you, you, you cannot, there's not many you're going to be able to get to. But in England, I can get... 
we can get to pretty much any producer and back in the day. And so that gives us the opportunity to, to build that relationship with the producer as well as the cheeses in a way that even in France they can't do. So regularity is important, uh, not just for relationship building, but also for building a relationship with the cheese. Um, and the more you do it, the more familiar you become, the more you're able to identify a cheese that's great when it's young. Um, you know, understanding the balance of the flavor, the relative merits of the salt, the sweet, the acid, the bitter, and understanding how those are going to evolve because you've tasted it. You've tasted hundreds, if not thousands of them. So, you know, you in your memory bank, um, your memory bank is privileged to have all these reference points. And then, you know, you can access those reference points. Montgomery's, which is the cheddar that we sell the most of, I've been privileged enough to go with Randolph to select that cheese extremely regularly. And so once you get into that groove, into that zone, you're, you're so close to it, you, you can really understand its character in all its different, you know, in all its, its different incarnations. With, with farmstead cheese, you, you know, it, you're not looking for a linear, you don't have a linear flavor and it's not going to be the same one day to the next. You have this, what I call a bandwidth of flavor. You know, we establish the bandwidth of flavor that we want to sell for specific cheeses and we need to understand what the different qualities are within that bandwidth that we find acceptable, understanding that there's variation there. And then the other trick is to understand what the customers are like, what they like, talk to them about flavors that they enjoy, and line up the different points where the, where the sine curves within that band, how the sine curves within that bandwidth are moving, and pick those points and identify them with the right customers. So it's a trick, that, that, that thing, that the whole thing is quite subjective. Um, but the more you do it, the more, and it's not just the tasting of the cheese, but the speaking to the customers about the taste and listening to their feedback and building. And each picture is, is a picture, whether it's the cheese or the customers, that you build over a long, ta- over a long time. That's a picture that's never complete, um, that involves a lot of tasting and a lot of talking, um, a lot of listening. And, um, you know, slowly, slowly, you, you sharpen it. You sharpen the picture, but the picture will never be really, really sharp. Um, and um, the job was never finished. Going back 20 years, it's interesting because the buzzword then, the buzzwords then were low fat. Uh, That was a big buzzword. And the other thing was, you know, raw milk was like a swear word. And so here we were selling full fat raw milk cheeses and no one else really was. And it's interesting now only because, you know, raw milk is one of the biggest buzzwords in the, in the food industry. And, you know, people know that fat equals flavor. So, but then it was not the case. Um, and yes, indeed, the areas where cheese was, you know, I think the, the areas that the, the, the business, the cheese business grew out of, mushroomed out of, uh, were, sh- were certainly, you know, New York and San Francisco, but also the university towns. So, you know, Ann Arbor is an obvious example. Boulder was another good example. 
And so communities where there was, you know, a lot of well-traveled people who uh, were used to eating good cheese with raw milk, with flavor, that they tried in, in France or in Italy or in Spain or in England, and they wanted to try that at home. So it would be traveling professors and, um, uh, and other people affiliated with universities. Definitely in those kinds of towns, there's a higher concentration a high ratio of those kinds of, of, of um, you know, uh, interested amateurs. And then, uh, you know, obviously New York and San Francisco, the same kind of thing, um, much less in the South, of course. Um, so you have this, I probably shouldn't say it, but I will anyway, a sort of Mason-Dixon line of quality, you know, of quality cheese consumption. That 80% of our sales are above this imaginary line. Um, and part of it's to do with climate. Part of it's just to do with just the food cultures in those two places. And, but then and even now, I think those things, uh, you know, that, that sort of division of, of sales has been consistent. It's just that now we have some people doing an amazing job in places like Des Moines, you know, which would be unthinkable in 92. It would have been, you know, out of the question that you'd been able to go to a place like that and find a great cheese shop. In fact, it would be impossible in the early 90s to find a dedicated cheese shop it wouldn't have been viable. You know, now they're popping up left and right. You know, it has been a, an absolute revolution. This piece was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee for HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The songs used in this piece in order of appearance are Shrinin by Archipelago, Blazian Fish Cakes by Rectech, the JT remix of Here by Knox, Snow Crash by Rectech, the Rectech remix of Lazy by Poolboy92, and again, Shrinin by Archipelago. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.